is a device that is a very common laboratory instrument for measuring very small effects by using two beams of light. Those two beams are produced by splitting usually a laser beam, but a single source of light in, into two with a beam splitter. We often think of this as a 50-50 beam splitter so that it splits the light equally. It's not a requirement that it be 50-50. And then the light travels in either of two arms that have lengths, we'll call them L1 and L2, and then back. So there's a mirror at the end of the arms. Those mirrors might be curved to focus the light, or they might be flat and just reflect it straight back. <coughs> and when the light gets back to this beam splitter, it gets split again. And so some of it from both arms will go back towards the laser and will interfere. And some of it will come out here and interfere. And this is everything that we discuss about the Michelson interferometer is completely analogous to results for the Mach Zender interferometer, which you may recall looks very similar. It's just that the path lengths now don't fold back on themselves. So the two output ports come out of a separate beam splitter rather than the same beam splitter. So the Mach Zender interferometer is kind of convenient because your two output ports are directly accessible, whereas here one of the output ports is going back towards the laser. So it's kind of hard to you know, stick a photo detector there and see how much light is going back towards the laser, because when you do, you block the laser light. Um, this one requires one fewer optics, so it's a little easier to set up and has some historical significance in that this is the basis for the Michelson-Morley experiment. Okay, um, this will measure the relative path length difference of the two arms by observing the intensity of the output, you can infer the value of delta. Delta is the phase difference between the two arms. And if you remember last time, we introduced an expression for the total intensity when you had two beams that interfered that looked like I1 plus I2 plus um, 2 square root of I1, I2. cosine delta. That's the case when the two fields are parallel, are polarized with the same polarization. And that's the case here because they come from the same laser field. So whatever polarization this laser has is the polarization that the two fields have when they interfere. So this expression holds. And as delta changes, that's going to be related to the relative path length of the two arms, then the output intensity will change. So that's the thing that we measure. We can infer what delta is. And then we can try to infer um, how a parameter that we're interested in knowing affects delta. So let's look at what delta is. It's the round trip phase difference between the two arms. So the round trip phase, call it phi 1, for light traveling along L1, comes from the fact that it goes a distance L1 and back. It goes a distance 2L. And how do we convert a distance into a phase? Multiply by K. 
So I'm going to be a little more specific. K is, recall that k is 2 pi over lambda. As we saw in the last homework, the wavelength of light depends on the index of refraction of the material it's in. So in a material of index n, the wavelength is a free space wavelength divided by n. So is this lambda the wavelength in vacuum, or is that the wavelength in, I guess this would be air or whatever material? this uh, interferometer is in. Whatever material it's in is what we should use. So I can write this as either um, n times k naught, or I can write it as 2 pi n over lambda naught. Okay, so k naught would be the k vector in vacuum. And in a material of index n, the k, k vector is n times larger. Because the k vector is inversely proportional to the wavelength, and the wavelength is n times smaller. Okay, so I want to make sure that I note that's k sub n. So I'll write that out in terms of the wavelength. And of course, I'm going to get a very similar expression for the light that goes in the other arm. It's just going to have subscript of 2 instead of subscript of 1. The wavelengths should be the same. The wavelengths in, are both the wavelength and vacuum. And so if I want to talk about the phase difference between these, I can write that now, just pulling out the common terms. And that's what's expressed up here. Okay, so lambda is a constant. In this case, it's, it's the wavelength coming out of the laser. And what this says is, if you can consider one arm to be fixed, let's say this mirror is fixed and this one is going to move back and forth, then you can determine how much the mirror has moved by how much this phase shift is, which affects how much intensity comes out. Okay, so this, for a long time, was how the length of a meter was was defined. So for, well, for a long time, for three years, I guess, is actually how long it was defined that way. The meter was defined as this many wavelengths of light from a Heaney laser. So there's a Heaney laser. Um, a Heaney laser oscillating on the 632.8 nanometer line. So how could you reproduce a standard in a lab we have an interferometer here with a Heaney laser. If we wanted to measure one, one meter precisely, rather than using a meter stick, we could take one of these mirrors 
put it on a translation stage, which I've done. Now, obviously, this translation stage is not, does not have enough range to move the mirror by a meter. But let's look at this. Here's the Heaney laser. Here's two lenses that act to expand the beam. They're just a telescope. This is a beam splitter right here. It reflects about 50% of the light. You can see it on this card to this mirror. It sends it back, and then it gets transmitted through, and it's being projected or being uh, viewed on the garbage can here. And about 50% of the light goes through the beam splitter, reflects off of this, and goes back. Some of it goes back towards the laser, some of it reflects off the beam splitter and goes there. You can't see that very well. Hopefully you can see that better. So that's just what's going on in the garbage can. You can see some rings that are kind of moving around. Those are interference fringes. Okay, if, I, if I block one arm, then we only have, we still, still see a spot, but there's no interference. There's just one beam there. If I unblock the arm, that, that spot doesn't seem nearly as stable. It seems to be moving around. There seem to be fringes. <coughs> right now, I'm just I'm blocking the other path. You can see it re those fringes require both paths to be present. And if I just tap the table, the vibrations in the table are enough to cause the position of the mirrors to change enough so that that interference pattern moves an appreciable amount. Okay, so if I now turn the uh, micrometer here on this translation stage, I'm going to move the mirror. And it, unfortunately, I can't really move it slow enough for you to see this. But what you should see, you sort of see the spots blinking. There's that these fringes are sort of moving by. And if they move too fast, they just get washed out by the camera. Um, what might make it a little easier is if I tilt one of the mirrors. If I tilt it a little bit, we now see I tilted it in uh, yaw. We now see vertical stripes because we've got two wave fronts that are overlapping and they're not collinear. They're not aligned. And so their interference has some spatial dependence now that produces these vertical stripes. And the effect now of me moving the mirror back, and again, it's, it's hard to see. They're, they're moving. They're not just vibrating. They're, they're translating to one side. As I move the mirror back, they're going to translate to one side. I'm changing the phase. I'm increasing the phase of the transmitted path as I move the mirror back. And as I increase the phase, every point is going to cycle through um, the, the value for delta at any given point will cycle, going to a maximum. Well, delta will just continually increase. But the uh, cosine of delta will cycle through max, min, max, min, max, min. Okay, so if you put a photo detector there and you counted how many times it cycled from a max to a min and back, we would call that one fringe, cycling through one fringe or one period of this uh, oscillatory function. Okay, so if I just move this thing back, far enough that I've cycled through 
however many million fringes that definition was based on. One point, about 1.6 million fringes. I will have moved this back not one meter, half a meter. And I will have increased the round trip path by one meter. Okay, so if I only to move it by half, if moving it a half a meter produces one and a half million fringes, you can see that even moving it by a micro, uh, half a micron produces one fringe. That's why it's so sensitive. If I touch this, those fringes move very rapidly, so fast they just get washed out on the screen. Well, you can measure. You, there's nothing wrong with uh, using that standard to calibrate a millimeter. Um, but, whoops, wrong button. But you can do it. You need a long stage. Um, I've, I've done it. I've done not a full meter, but I've done a centimeter. I mean, a centimeter, if translation on one of these stages is no problem. And what you do is uh, you just hook it up. You just you just hook it up to a, a computer that counts for you. No, I didn't do it that way when I did it. I did the last time. The last time I did this, it was on a, a strip chart. This is a long time ago, and uh, the strip chart is just a rolling piece of paper or the pen. It's like an oscilloscope; it goes back and forth until you get uh, these these things. And as long as you're turning it fast enough, or then you get a smooth continuous monotonic change in the value of delta. And you just go back, you know, what on your micrometer reads one centimeter. Your micrometer says one centimeter, then you count the fringes. You can calibrate your micrometer that way. To an, what at the time, for a brief few years, was an actual absolute standard. So you didn't need to go to Paris and, you know, pull out this ingot of, you know, one meter long tungsten or something like that. Which is the way it would have been done, you know, years earlier. So this makes a d distance standard accessible in the laboratory. Right? All you need is a Heaney laser. Now, it's no longer defined this way. I think I mentioned the meter is now defined in terms of the second and the speed of light. So the experiment becomes a little harder to, to calibrate to a, a known standard. You now have to have some cesium that's oscillating at a particular atomic transition. And, um, but the idea is, 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 is the same. Um, other things we can do with the Michelson interferometer. Um, we could change not only, let's see, not only the length of one arm, we could change the index of refraction in that arm. You could measure, for instance, the index of refraction of air. Well, the index of refraction of air is about one, right? We're always assuming it's one in class examples. Are you, do you have to do this in 120D right now? Maybe I don't need to say anymore. You put like a vacuum tube in there, you pump the air out. Okay, so for those of you who haven't just done this, you could take a tube and put it in one arm, right? And that tube is filled with air. And you see some interference pattern. And then you suck the air out of that tube and you watch those fringes change. Because now you haven't changed the length of one arm, you change the index of refraction in that arm. Um, but the same principle applies. 
uh, I can demonstrate a slightly different effect. We can change the index of refraction of error by heating it. Okay, so this will work. This will be more interesting if you can see the interference pattern, it turns out. Let me uh, realign this uh, system. I'm not going to be able to get it perfect just because the uh, mounts aren't stable enough. But um, it's essentially, as much as I can make it, a uniform uh, phase front. You're going to see one sort of bullseye pattern, one ring. That comes from the uh, length of the two arms not being exactly the same. Since I have a a spherical wavefront that's diverging. Um, I have two different radiuses of curvature, those spherical wavefronts, when they overlap, since I travel two different distances. And that gives rise to that bullseye pattern. Um, anyhow, so when I heat this, I can heat it even just with my finger. Uh, when I get my finger near it, you can see the fringe move. If I push my finger a little further, well, OK, you actually see my finger. <laughs> but uh, this. Even, oh, let me be clear about this. My finger is the region where there's no fringes. Right now, my finger is covering the whole thing. I'm going to pass from bottom to top. There's my finger, and there's my finger moving out of the way. And to the edge of my finger, you see the, the, the interference pattern just distorted. That just comes from the heat coming off my finger affecting the air. A match will be a little bit more dramatic, maybe. So you can just see the uh, sort of, those would be basically be contours of constant temperature. And the spacing of the contours is however much the temperature needs to change so that dndt, the, the rate of change of the index of refraction as a function of temperature, changes enough so that integrated over the length of heating, like however many millimeters is actually getting heated, um, the phase change is, is a wavelength. So other things we can see. Um, we can use this to map out the thickness of the optical thickness of a CD case. Right? If this is a very high quality optic, it'll have a uniform thickness, have a uniform index of refraction. This is not that type of optic. Um, without the CD case in, we basically see one fringe in that pattern. And with it in place, maybe 10 to 15 fringes. That's over a five millimeter spot. So the variation in thickness of this is about five wavelengths. It's about a wavelength per millimeter. So you move about a one millimeter on this, you get about one wavelength of variation. Here's a microscope slide. This is a better optic, same principle. So here's without the slide, here's with the slide. There's really not more fringes with the slide. 
It's just uh, motion of my hand moving around, causing the fringe that's there to, to shift around. If I put the slide in sort of halfway, this is a little tricky because I don't want to touch the table because that causes vibrations, but I want to keep this somewhat steady. I put it in like halfway. You can see the effect of the slide. You can see a couple things right there. You see some band structure, like some horizontal stripes. Um, that probably comes from, uh, there's reflections off the front and back surface. So there's interference coming from that. The coherence length of this laser is probably about three or four meters. So it's essentially coherent for everything that we're going to do here. Let me misalign this a little bit so I have some stripes. It might be a little easier to see what happens, uh, what I want to demonstrate. The position of the stripes, it's not so easy to see. Um, Primarily because the slide isn't locked down. But if you see a pattern of stripes like this, and then you have the slide right here, and that pattern shifts over, that's telling you that this region has a different phase retardation than this region, and you can count the difference by how far the fringes shift over. So in this example, they all shift over about one fringe. That would be about one wavelength of retardation. If I know the index of refraction of the slide, that would let me calculate its thickness, or vice versa. Um, OK, so let's do a few more examples, mathematical examples. We'll have a nice long break, and everyone can get a chance to play with this, since it's fun to play with. <laughs> um, right, so we could uh, measure the length of a meter. A common use for a Michelson interferometer is in something called Fourier transform spectroscopy. The idea is basically, if you're trying to observe the frequency components of light, this laser is essentially monochromatic. It has one particular wavelength associated with it for our purposes. And as we move a mirror back, we see this fringe, or this pattern, cycle periodically. And if we look at, the, uh, we'll look at this relationship in a minute for what that um, output intensity is going to look like, I've written it up here. If we move one of the mirrors at constant velocity, then we're essentially linearly increasing delta as a function of time. And so what we would see as a function of time is for an output intensity, some sinusoidal wave. What if I had two different frequency components? So I had a red laser and a green laser shining into this interferometer. One of them would give me this output. Let's say that's from the red laser. What would the green laser's output look like as a function of time? 
Would it take longer or not as long to cycle through a full fringe? Not as long, because the wavelengths are shorter. It doesn't need to travel as far, so it doesn't need to take as long. So a green wavelength would, see, would produce an output that looks like that. And what you'd actually see if you had both on the same detector is you'd, you'd get the sum of those. Well, what's kind of interesting is the sum of those is going to look like uh, the sum of two different sine waves. Right? We saw before when we talked about Fourier transforms that a pattern like this, the sum of two different sine waves, could be described in Fourier transform space as two different frequencies. So the intensity is a function of frequency. We've got, say, a red laser and a green laser. We plot the intensity as a function of frequency. I've got two spikes. This is the Fourier transform of that. So what this output as a function of time shows you is actually the Fourier transform of the light that goes in. And it doesn't need to be just a single laser or two lasers. You could have a light source that has some spectral distribution that might tell you about the material that's generating the light or that's, inter that's interacting with the light, and then record its Fourier transform in this way. Wait. Is one of those a carrier wave and one a modulating wave? Uh, in the example I said where you have like two lasers, you probably wouldn't think of it that way. but uh, yes, typically what you're referring to is something that you see a lot in communications. It's a spectrum that looks like this. And we call this a carrier frequency and this the modulation frequency. And so if you turn on the radio to some radio station, say 100 megahertz, 100 megahertz is if you were to look at a spectrum of the electromagnetic radiation coming into your car's antenna, there'd be a peak at 100 megahertz, and then there'd be some sidebands around that. And when those sidebands interfere with this, they cause its amplitude and its phase to vary. And the variation in the phase, if you plotted the phase as a function of time, that's the audio waveform. So frequency modulation works like that. and. Uh, you might see it drawn like that. I'm not going to go into the details of that. Amplitude modulation usually looks like that. And you'd see a carrier for every radio station. And any content that they're broadcasting gets modulated and produces Fourier components around that carrier frequency. OK, um, so let's look at what the output of the Michelson interferometer looks like when we move the mirror at a constant velocity. Okay. So we could just say delta increases linearly as a function of time. But I think it's a worthwhile exercise to go through the math again. It shows where delta came from. You know what? Let's skip that so you guys have more time to play with the interferometer. <laughs> if we move. L1 at constant velocity, um, then we can say L2 is equal to L1 plus some time-dependent term. The path length difference is, is time-dependent. 
we had delta looking like 4 pi over lambda n1 l1 minus n2 l2. And now I can write that as 4 pi over lambda 1. If I write l2 as l1 plus some time-dependent term, and if the indices of refraction are the same, then that's what delta looks like. It becomes time-dependent. And it can tell me then, so the periodicity can tell me about the wavelength of the light, assuming I know the velocity. Or if I know the wavelength, it can tell me about the velocity of the mirror. Okay, so both of those things are done. Um, the current most accurate method for measuring the local acceleration due to gravity is to set one of these things up, a Michelson interferometer, one beam going vertically, take a mirror, you drop it. You take a mirror or a corner cube. A corner cube is, is the, think of it as the inside corner of a box where all three surfaces are reflective. Not a very good picture. Let me consider a two-dimensional corner cube. Looks like that. <laughs> um, if you take two mirrors and you orient them at 90 degrees, you probably have this either in your bathroom or you've been in a hotel where they've got mirrors on two walls that go adjacent. Has anyone ever noticed what you see in the corner? You see yourself in the corner. So if you're standing over here, you'll see an image you know, across the sink. You'll also see an image right in the corner. And the reason is, just from geometry, whatever the angle the light goes in is the same the angle that the light comes out. You can work that out from the law of reflection and the fact that these are complementary angles. Says this angle equals that angle. This angle is 90 minus that angle, but it's measured with respect to, an, to a surface which is 90 degrees tilted. So the output angle is the same as the input angle. So these things, regardless of the orientation of the corner, will always reflect light straight back. They're called retroreflectors. Tiny little things like this, little micro corner cubes, are manufactured and embedded in the roadway and in your sneakers and in your jacket that you wear when you work out. And when you take a picture of you wearing that jacket, all you see is a really bright stripe. Right? Or when you're driving at night with your headlights on, you see the headlights reflect off of the reflectors in the road. They're essentially, they would be little mirrors if the mirrors could always reflect the light right back to you. But they can't. They need to be aligned in order to do that. But the corner cubes will always reflect the light right back. There's corner cubes on the moon. They're put there for lunar ranging. And there's a story I've heard of, a, of an old guy who wanted to go uh, fishing in the bay. And he was right in the middle of the, uh, the, freight, the freight container traffic. And so he didn't want to get permission to do that. He didn't want to fish anywhere else. So he took 
three pieces of cardboard, covered them with aluminum foil, taped them together in a box, lifted it up on a sail, and rowed out into the middle of the bay. None of the big boats bothered him. The reason is their radar looks for a reflection off of objects. Most objects are diffuse, only reflect a small amount. This particular thing was acting like a corner cube, was sending the beam right back to them. It looked like a giant ship. So, corner cubes get used all over. Cat's eyes have this type of structure in them. That's why you hear like a cat's eye. Uh, it will also be used to describe this. So anyhow, it's independent of orientation. It will always retroreflect light. So that's what's used. A Michelson interferometer with one arm vertically. A corner cube is placed in the path. Air is evacuated, and it's dropped. And by measuring the rate at which the output intensity cycles, you can measure how fast it's falling. And the speed is a function of time. You can take the derivative of that and get the acceleration. So here's a picture of a scanning Michelson interferometer with a corner cube there. Um, any arbitrary input beam here can be, the spectrum of that can be measured on this detector. As I mentioned, as the mirror moves back, this detector is going to cycle through fringes and The width of those, or the, the spacing of those fringes tells you about the wavelength of that input beam. In order to calibrate that, it's useful to have a known reference. The easiest way to do that is take a, a light source where you know the frequency of it, and you include that on the input beam. So take a Heaney laser, and you send it in. So if, if you see this regular pattern that's due to the Heaney laser, you know that this temporal separation corresponds to 632.8 nanometers. Then you include an input beam as well, and you get some additional structure. And you can then say, relative to the spacing of the Heaney laser, you can say then what that spacing is and relate it then to the uh, wavelength of the Heaney. Okay, so the, ma the math as far as how to do that is up on the slide. I'm not that interested in going through it. This is actually a slide that I use for a different class. We did the vacuum chamber. OK, let's take a break. You have a question? Oh, you have a question? OK, and then we'll talk about the interference pattern, sort of what it means, alignment, and uh, the ultimate sensitivity, how sensitive these things can be. OK, so you're welcome to play with this. You're welcome to light matches. Just don't, <laughs> don't burn each other. Make sure they're blown out. Make sure, some, make sure you're watching the match and not just the interference pattern. <laughs> okay. Does the glass on the end of the uh, vacuum cell make a difference? Uh -huh. It does. It contributes. Um, but in your case, what you're probably doing in lab was you're starting with the vacuum cell full, and then you pumped it down and measuring the fringe. You're counting the fringes during that process. So you're just looking at a difference. The only thing that changed, so in that case, in that sense, the glass doesn't matter. But it does affect the fringe pattern when you started and when you finished. Just in this same thing.
So, yeah, so the index of refraction that you measure depends on temperature, pressure, a number of things. Now, the index of refraction of air is like 1.0001 something. I mean, it's like four or five significant digits before you get a deviation from one. So if the temperature change, I don't know, I can't tell you offhand how big DNDT is, but if you're measuring you know, a percent change in the index of refraction, and you go into the fifth or sixth or seventh significant digit. So, so what I'm saying is probably doesn't matter that much. Depends on how precise you're measuring, whether or not that's an issue. But the first order, I mean, the first significant digit that you measure is going to not be affected by room temperature variations or, or atmospheric pressure variations. doesn't help because the vibra translational motion of the mirrors is not a problem. And with a corner cube, that would still be the case. Moving longitudinally, whether it's a corner cube or mirror, still changes the phase. What it is going to remove the sensitivity to is uh, the tilt. So any takers for the? Well, that means four of you are not. All right, Marie's going to. Did you apply the Yeah, so it's going to be open book. Um, uh, it's open Pedrati. And then uh, you can bring any book you want. I don't care. It's open any book you've got. And then one page of notes. Couple comments. Um, Chapter 18 in Pedrati has a nice table that lists the ray matrices. That will be very useful, except that one of them is wrong. It's the one for the, uh, I think it's a slab matrix. It has an L in the top right. I'll make that announcement in class next time. Since you all have your books, you can just correct it then. Um, it should be a zero. Um, if you have to use your book, you're not going to get through the test in time. You can have it. You may you know, find on one problem or something it's a useful reference. Pretty much everything in the test, pretty much, you could solve by finding an appropriate example in the book and duplicating or such. But the test will be made so that you won't have time to do that. Um, things you should know. You should know um, rough wavelengths. So the difference between visible, infrared, ultraviolet, regions of the spectrum. I'm not going to expect you to know that 570 nanometers is yellow, but 550 nanometers is green. But um, you should know it would benefit you to know a few of the simple ray matrices. So a lens, free space. Like I said, you'll have your book. I won't expect you to know the um, refraction at a curved surface off the top of your head. Um, you should be able to draw ray diagrams for simple and somewhat more complex systems. 
So having one or two lenses in series, you should be able to draw the diagrams for those. So I mentioned you should bring a straight edge. You should be comfortable with the, um, the Gaussian imaging formula. That would be the uh, thin lens equation. So one over the incident, or one over the object distance plus one over the image distance is one over the focal length. So I expect you to know that. I don't expect you to know the lens maker's formula. Okay, so you may have to reference that if I ask you to find the focal length of a lens given all of its parameters. But um, you should be able to convert between phasor notation and functional form, and the real functional form, and back. You should be able to manipulate phasors. Okay, so the last problem on the last homework set, if you had trouble with that, you might review that. You should know the definition for basic radiometric quantities. So you should know that irradiance is power per unit area. You should know that it's proportional to the field squared. Um, you should know the speed of light. You should be able to do any of the homework problems that we've done up until now. I won't ask you to go through the Laplacian of a cylindrical wave, okay, but I might ask you to do it in Cartesian coordinates. You should know Fermat's principle. There was a homework question that asked you to use Fermat's principle uh, a couple homeworks ago to find the thickness of a thin lens. Only one or two people used Fermat's principle to do that. So I'm going to try to put something on the test that requires you use Fermat's principle. Okay, so if you did that, even if you got it correct, you might go back and ask how you would do it if, if you had to use Fermat's principle. Okay, so let's go back to the interferometer. Um, one way that you can measure how much the phase is different between two beams or in one beam with or without something present is by counting how many fringes pass a photo. You could have a photo detector here. And as you, for example, moved one arm back, you'd see this entire fringe pattern collapse. See these bullseyes sort of getting closer to closer, closer to the center, and they just sort of disappear when they got to the center. If you were measuring the intensity at the center, you'd see, you'd see some periodic pattern as you moved the mirror back. Right? So you could just count how many peaks there were, and that's essentially counting how many 
fringes pass by the center or at any given point as you're moving something or heating something or pumping the air out of something or doing whatever it is you're changing. Um, and obviously that's a straightforward method. It's just counting, but it sort of limits our accuracy in that we're just counting integers. right? So you might move the mirror by a slight amount that shifts the fringe, but not by a full fringe. And you might want to estimate how much it moved over. Um, you can do that. Here's two interference patterns where I've moved the mirror by a tenth of a wavelength. Whoops, wrong button. Okay, so you can see that if you were counting the number of fringes that pass by a point over here, you wouldn't have a full fringe passing, but you can see the difference in the pattern. So you might think about how you could measure fringe counts less than one. So here's what would happen then as you move the mirror. That's what I was describing. You see this bullseye pattern. And what's happening is, is the phase shift is that value for delta is changing linearly here. So you see it oscillating. And because what this is showing is um, two wave fronts interfering that have different radii of curvature. So you have a spherical wave, you split it. The two arms have different lengths. Because they have different lengths, the curvature of the two wave fronts aren't matched. That's why you see this pattern. At every point, it's cycling through. It just, it just appears as if those things are moving. So if you did measure at a certain point, you'd see this. You'd see a, a, a sinusoidal change in the intensity. And so with a photo detector, you can measure much more accurately than just bright or dark. You can measure the actual irradiance and compare it, say, to the maximum. You might ask, how small of a change in irradiance can you attribute to the motion of the mirror or one of these other parameters? So you might ask, how small a change in irradiance can be considered significant? And how much of a, if you measure a change in the voltage out of your photodetector, how much of that is just noise? And how much of it is a real physical uh, effect? And so the ultimate limit to the amount of sensitivity comes from shot noise. Shot noise is, uh, is an effect that comes from the fact that light is made up of photons. And when you measure for any length of time, you're essentially, your photodetector is essentially counting photons. Okay, however many photons hit the detector, that's a certain amount of energy. The rate at which they're hitting, that's a certain amount of power. And that's what your photodetector is telling you about. Well, in any given measurement, there, even if it's a nominally constant intensity beam, the number of photons detected may vary around that average. And just like if it's raining, and it's raining with a constant you know, one inch per hour, you stick a bucket out for a second. If you figured out the number of raindrops you collected, it would be different than if you stuck the bucket out for another second. It would be variations, statistical variations. Those statistical variations in the number of photons detected is called the shot noise. It's called shot because back in the day when people carried buckshot with them, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know where that's going. If, if you drop buckshot on the ground, 
That's the sound it makes, pitter-patter, like rain. <laughs> I can see that, and didn't make any more sense to anyone else than it did to me. Um, it's a white noise source. It exists at all frequencies, just like when it rains. The rain doesn't have a characteristic. It has a characteristic sound. That sound is white noise, like static. It's uh, uniform at all frequencies. So we can ask how big that shot noise is. Um, turns out that for photons, photons obey what's called Poissonian statistics. Um, and the, the function of Poissonian statistics is that if you have a number of independent events all occurring uh, essentially at the same time, the number, the average number that you'd have in any given time is proportional to the um, variance in the number that you would have from measurement to measurement. Okay, so what that means is you measure the power coming out of a laser. The lasers should be constant in radiance. You put that on a photo detector, put that on an oscilloscope and zoom in, this is what you're going to see, something like this. It's not truly a constant. I mean, it has some offset from zero. And if you zoom in enough, you see variations. And so in one interval, let's say right here, you measure a little bit higher power than you measure at another interval. Right? So you get all these digital oscilloscope is literally just going to integrate for different lengths of time, determine the total, and then just plot that value. And it just happens to look like a line when those points are very close together. Okay, so there's some average value here. Call the average value for the number of, of photons. So the time average of the number of photons, or the average value averaged over time. Sigma RMS is the root mean square. It tells you that an average point will lie that far above or below the curve. And the variance is just that squared. Okay, so what that says is the variance. Or the, I'm sorry, the RMS value proportional to the square root of the number of photons. Therefore, if you look at this, at this uh, output curve, the irradiance of the output is a function of delta. The difference in the phase between the, the two interfering beams. It's most sensitive to small changes in delta over here on the side of a fringe. That's where the irradiance changes the most when delta changes. The slope of that line is di d delta. This is delta, this is i, so the slope is di d delta. That slope is just equal to the peak irradiance. Okay, just like the maximum slope of a cosine wave is 1. The maximum slope of 2 cosine x is 2. Right? So it's equal to the peak, peak value. So you can rearrange that. You can solve for if delta i is the smallest change in intensity you can have, you can figure out what the smallest change in the phase that produces that intensity is. 
So d delta equals di over i. di over i, that's the smallest fluctuation in intensity that you can see divided by the average intensity. Well, the fluctuations proportional to how much the average point is changing. So delta phi is proportional to sigma RMS. The total irradiance is proportional to, to the average number of photons being detected. And therefore, di over i is proportional, or is equal to 1 over square root of the number of photons being detected. So how many photons you detect depends on how long you integrate. If you integrate for a very long period of time, you can add up more and more photons, and the relative change in the irradiance becomes smaller. So one way of saying that is, if your oscilloscope is sampling very rapidly, you might see something like this. But if it samples less rapidly, you might essentially integrate all these points and plot at once. And then you'd integrate over all these points and plot at once, integrate over all these and plot at once. And so if the, you connect those lines, those tend to have less variation than when you sample more rapidly. That's because the number of photons you're averaging over is greater. When you average over more random data points, you get closer to the true average. Okay, so the number of photons detected is the power in the beam divided by the energy of each photon. The power in the beam is how many watts, how many joules pass by a point in a second. So when I divide it by the number of joules in a photon, that's the number of photons per second times delta t, and it gives me the, uh, the total number that get collected in a measurement of time delta t. Okay, So that's how small a phase shift you can see. Depends on the power, the wavelength of light, or the frequency of the light, and the integration time. Okay, So um, how small of a displacement could you measure using a neodymium YAG laser with a wavelength of about one micron in a one second measurement using a Michelson interferometer? Okay, so the minimum phase shift, one over the square root of n, is given by that formula we just had. That's assuming that all other sources of noise have been eliminated. Um, the power is 500 milliwatts. So here I'm plugging in 500 milliwatts. The time is one second. I'm writing the frequency as c over lambda. So the wavelength is also here in the denominator. And then the hc, I just look, plug in the, those constants. And I can evaluate this expression. And I get 6 times 10 to the minus 10 radians. So about a nano radian is how much phase shift you can measure. So that's about. 10 to the minus 9 smaller than a wavelength. So the wavelength is 10 to the minus 6. We're measuring about one part in per billion of that. So you can measure about 10 to the minus 17 meter change 
in one of the mirrors relative to the other. How big is an atom? So an atom is about a million times larger than that. Okay, so the device can be very sensitive. Um, this is what's used for detection of gravitational waves. It's a Michelson interferometer with, as it turns out, 1064 nanometer light. A um, little higher power, a couple kilowatts circulating. So higher power, does that improve the sensitivity or make it worse? Improves the sensitivity. Um, higher power means more photons, which means the variance is increasing. Means the noise is increasing. Why would that improve the sensitivity? Yeah. The noise increases as the square root of power, but the signal increases as the power. And so we sort of saw that when we divided by the noise by the power. They both depended on the number of photons at power, but in different ways. OK, so um, if we go back to the little movie that I was playing earlier that was showing an interference pattern where <coughs> the beams weren't either perfectly aligned or didn't have the same radius of curvature, so there's a spatial distribution to the interference, then we said if you just looked at the intensity at a point, you could see the sinusoidal variation of that intensity. And physically, if you put a photodetector that was small compared to this beam size, that's what you would be observing. You'd be observing the irradiance integrated over the area of that photodetector. That's the power that you would see. Um, so the argument that we just had said that the higher the power that you detect, the better your sensitivity. So what you might want to do is have a bigger photodetector. The problem here with this type of interference pattern, if you have a big photodetector, what do you think you might observe as, as this interference pattern moves like this? You wouldn't see much change because if your detector is as big as a whole pattern, it's going to be detecting the regions of constructive interference and destructive interference. And those positions may move on the detector, but it's integrating the whole surface of the detector. So it's averaging out the total intensity seen over the whole thing. So what you need is your photodetector to be small compared to these, these fringes. But you want your photodetector to be big to collect as much power. So what you want is the fringes to be as coarse as possible, as far as part as possible. Which means you want the, the uh, phase fronts to be as matched as possible. Okay, So let's look back at the uh, actual device. Let me misalign one mirror. I'm going to tilt it. I tilted it kind of far. And if you look carefully, you can see some, some thin lines. You can't really see them very well on the screen. You can see them much better on the uh, actual trash can. 
just the resolution of the camera is not fine enough to see the very fine fringes. Okay, there they're a little coarser. And as I bring the two beams into better and better alignment, they get coarser and coarser still. So they're, they're basically aligned, and I just have a spot. There's a single spot, and there's the two interfering. Right, so that is basically a single fringe across the entire beam profile. So then I could put a big detector there, right, and the fringes wouldn't get washed out. So that's why it's important to align and match the, the path length of the two arms to make the fringes coarse and big and to allow you to detect as much power to get as much sensitivity as possible. If you don't, if you're detecting more than just if, there, if the interference pattern varies across your detector, then you'll have a reduced fringe visibility. Remember, the fringe visibility was related to the contrast. What the peak irradiance that we can see to the, to the minimum irradiance that we see is. And so if your detectors, even if you have perfect contrast interference, if your detector averages over um, positive and negative regions, let's say this is your interference pattern, and your detector has some finite size. If you take a detector and you integrate over this region here, you're going to get some value. You put that detector over here, and you're observing points that are going towards zero, you're always going to be detecting some positive value. So. The fringe pattern you might see in your detector, due to its finite size, might look more like this, somewhat washed out. So using the same definition we had before, the fringe visibility may be reduced by the maximum. This could be the maximum voltage on your photodiode minus the minimum voltage divided by the sum of those two things, the so same definition that we had before. And obviously, if the max and min are the same, then you have no visibility. And if the min is 0, then your visibility is 100% or, or 1. So the phase shift that you can detect gets decreased by that effective visibility. Okay, so the minimum detectable phase shift is found from the shot noise limit. The actual detectable yeah the actual detectable phase shift will be reduced because v is less than 1 so this number becomes larger than delta min so the detectable um, phase variation becomes larger Okay, so I just misaligned the interferometer. We saw what it looked like. I have a movie here that shows it a little, mo little better. So this is just a numerical simulation. But it's showing what would happen if, oh, let's just watch it for fun. I think it would be better with groovy music, sort of like that electron video. <laughs> um, so what it's simulating is you're trying to align the two beams. Okay, and course alignment, usually when you set one of these things up, you see two separate beams. And then you bring them together. And it's only when they're overlapping together that you start to see fringes. But um, 
starting with the two beams, one is stationary, the other one is moving left right until it's directly above, and then it's lowered until it's aligned with the other one, and then the path lengths of the two are adjusted until they're the same, and that's finally what we see here. So each beam is a Gaussian profile. It's about this, the Gaussian width is about the width of this picture. So this is just what a single beam would look like. And let's watch that again. Maybe I can slow it down. Okay, Right here, we see very fine fringes. They're barely visible because they're smaller than, I mean, if they're smaller than a pixel, they're not going to be visible. Right? If the full phase uh, contour can't be shown with pixels, they essentially get washed out. So that's why the edges look washed out. And then as the uh, beams become aligned left-right, it's like you're zooming in on it, or you're moving in on a bullseye pattern. And we end up a little bit above the target. It's like having one spot above the other. And so you might adjust the two, or adjust one mirror until you have a pattern like that. So adjusting it left and right until the pattern is horizontal. It tells you you've properly adjusted the, the yaw. Now we'll adjust the pitch, so we'll tip it up and down until we get that pattern. And that's showing that there's two curved wavefronts that have different radii of curvature. So if we make those two curvatures the same, the way you do that, that's a little harder. Typically it means unbolting one of the mirrors and moving it on the table, which then requires you do the alignment again. So that's why the numerical simulation works a little bit better. Um, you eventually converge on this pattern. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so let's consider that. Let's say you've got two beams that are misaligned in one direction. So that would come from, let me try to sort of draw the whole um, interferometer so that I can see a little bit more where that comes from. I'm going to take and assume that one beam is perfectly aligned. Perfectly aligned would mean that it's retroreflecting right back. So usually the easiest way to align these initially is to make sure both beams retroreflect back into the laser. The other beam is tilted from this mirror. And you've got two wavefronts. The wavefronts are perpendicular to the rays. I didn't draw that very well. The wavefronts are perpendicular to the rays, and the rays are at angles with respect to each other, then the wavefronts will be at angles with respect to each other. And I can see just from this picture, if these wave fronts that I've drawn represent regions of, uh, let's say, maximum uh, electric field variation, then regions where 
the wave fronts cross are going to be constructive interference. Right? In regions where one wave front is in the middle of two others is where the peak of one wave is interfering with the, the valley of another. And that's going to be destructive interference. And here we're going to see um, there's essentially a line of constructive interference, a line here of constructive interference, a line here of constructive interference, a line here, and then between them is destructive interference. Okay, and that's, what's, that's what I see in one dimension. In the other dimension, I'm going to assume that, let's say these are on the table, they're both horizontal, so they're aligned in, in pitch but not in yaw. Then I would see this pattern. And as I bring these two rays closer to parallel, then these wave fronts become closer to parallel. And the spacing, and if you think about these triangles, as this green edge and this blue edge become more and more parallel, the distance between these wave front crossings becomes further and further apart. The fringes become more and more coarse. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of examples we can do on this. Um, we can either do one more example or I can go through the Sanyak interferometer. Okay. I'll take that as uh, indifference. The Sanyak interferometer is, uh, is a two-beam interferometer, which is why we talk about it today. But it's a little different in that the two beams travel the same path, just in opposite directions. So it looks like this. Um, and as a result, the phase difference that they detect, that they see, is the same. Okay, or at least it is at DC. Okay, if, if the system is static, they see the same phase difference and the same phase, and the output here would be destructive. It's a, it comes from the phase relationship of the beam splitter. We get destructive interference here. I'm sorry, constructive interference here, destructive interference going back there. Um, okay, so it might not seem very interesting. One thing that's interesting about that, though, is a Michelson interferometer, when you align it, you get this fringe pattern, but as I talk and that vibrates the mirrors or I touch the table, that fringe pattern changes. This fringe pattern doesn't change. It's just always bright coming out here and always dark coming out there. So it's not sensitive to, to low-frequency effects. So you can't use it to measure static things like sticking a piece of glass in there and seeing what effect it has. You can, however, use it to measure high-frequency effects. For example, if you rotate this thing very rapidly, you can imagine that during the travel time of light going around that loop, that whole plane has rotated. And as a result, one beam has to travel a greater distance than the other to go around. Okay, and that produces a phase shift. So you can use this as a rotation sensor. It will detect very sensitive changes in the rotation around an axis perpendicular to the plane. And this is how airplanes navigate. It's called a fiber optic gyro. Typically, rather than using free space mirrors, this is a spool of fiber wrapped up in a loop. And that's embedded in an airplane. It uses it for inertial navigation sensors. Um, 
you can measure the rotation rate of the Earth very easily. So you build one of these things, you say it should be dark here. It's not. The amount of phase shift that causes that comes from the rotation of this due to the rotation of the Earth. So it will vary depending on your latitude, because depending on your latitude, that affects how much of this area vector is projected along the pole of the Earth. So the way this works out, it's, it's not quite right because it ignores uh, general relativity. But the transit time around this loop is, it has to go four, if this is a square of side L, it has to travel a distance 4L at a speed C. So the transit time is 4L over C. And during that transit time, if this thing is rotating at a rate omega, then the additional path length that needs to travel is omega times LT. So omega times the transit time is the angle that it rotates. And then L is you know, a, a distance L away from the center of something that's rotating gives you the, the distance. That's an approximation. Um, and so taking that change in L and multiplying it by K, right, we get an expression for the phase difference. And so that phase difference depends on L squared, which is the area, and the rotation rate. So it looks like area times rotation rate divided by wavelength. Um, also, if you move one of these mirrors rapidly, if it's moving fast compared to the transit time, so for example, if I Let's say I move this mirror in and then out. And the beam going this way sees the mirror when it's pushed in. But then I move it out before the beam that's going this way gets here. Then they're going to have seen a different path length. So if I shake this mirror at a frequency that's larger than 1 over the round trip transit time, then I will see a dynamic phase shift here. I won't see a DC phase shift. So it can be used to sense high frequency signals. And the nice thing is it's insensitive to DC noise. So if you compare that to trying to do a similar measurement with the Michelson, this is what the interference condition looks like on a Michelson. And I said, you're most sensitive if you're biased right here at the side of a fringe. So if you set up the Michelson so that it's measuring on the side of a fringe, and then you measure small variations around that point, you can be very sensitive. But over time, it will drift to different points. And when it's, let's say it's down here, and you get small variations in, in the path length difference, that's going to have no effect on the output intensity, or only a second order effect. But the Sanyak is always biased to a constant point, because it has no DC sensitivity. So anyhow, um, just a little bit of background on that. <coughs> 